Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reconstruct. Today, Dan and I have a discussion about several different philosophical and theological topics in response to our interview with Kevin Van Hooser. That interview is the episode immediately preceding this one, so go ahead and listen to it first if you want the whole picture. If you haven't listened to it, we do a pretty good job of contextualizing our remarks, so you should be fine. Dan has three main things he wants to share. First is that he thinks postmodernism is basically our best option from which to choose, and that we should embrace it. Second, he talks about sociologist Christian Smith and his idea of pervasive interpretive pluralism, which supports Dan's conviction that we should look to Christ when understanding scripture, rather than problematically thinking that scripture is entirely inerrant and univocal. Third, Dan doesn't agree with the way Van Hooser explains horrific Old Testament texts, and instead thinks that we should take them more seriously and admit what they are. I focus my remarks on two main aspects of our interview. First, I talk about philosopher Richard Rorty and epistemology, which is concerned with the nature and scope of knowledge. I essentially agree with Rorty, in contrast to Van Hooser, that truth is made rather than found. Second, I talk about philosopher Alvin Plantinga in psychology. Van Hooser supports Plantinga's notion that our minds are designed by God to reliably produce true beliefs, whereas I think that modern psychology has disproven this notion, and I try to back this up with evidences and arguments that I find convincing. Hope you enjoy. So with Kevin Van Hooser, you know, there was actually a lot in that conversation that I really liked. And I was surprised by that. You know, like I assumed that he would be the guest that I would have the most like theological qualms with of everybody that we have interviewed thus far. One would think that Van Hooser is someone with whom you disagree on almost everything. So I'm really happy you two found agreement, at least somewhere. Yeah, I mean, now afterwards, I realize we don't disagree on everything. It's it's more just that we come down on different sides of a lot of issues that I care about a lot. And so that's probably where I got that idea. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it was pretty clear the stuff that I liked, you know, just from the sound of my voice during the interview. So let's not focus on that in this response episode. I'd like to focus on the stuff that I did take issue with. Okay, good. And I've basically got three, I got three bullet points and then we'll go through one at a time. The first one is about postmodernism and that I think that postmodernism is sort of the only good answer to the to the data of the world. Wow. The second one is uh, the argument that Christian Smith makes in the Bible made impossible. He calls it pervasive interpretive pluralism. And then the third point is that I think that Van Hooser, like many more conservative Christian scholars, really downplays like how disgusting some of the morality stuff is in the Old Testament text. Sure, sure. Yeah. So first, postmodernism and how... It's the best explanation for the data of the world. Yeah. So what I mean by that is like, I think it's just true to me that like there are just so many factors on any significant conversation and it is unclear to what extent personal experience ought to or does play a role in sort of theological or or religious experience. There's just too much for us to say, no, 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 no. This is the one authoritative meta narrative. And my understanding of postmodernism is to say there is not one authoritative meta narrative. I am convinced at this point in my life by the idea that no, the data of the world requires me to have a much more open hand toward all the different narratives and the different kinds of experiences that I just think. Uh, yeah, some, some kind of postmodernism, not a radical postmodernism. And that's where he and I would agree. And that came up once or twice in the conversations. I don't think we have nothing to stand on. Uh, I just think we we do need to be kind of postmodern. I'm glad you brought up the term meta narrative because that's a postmodern philosophical term. How would you define meta narrative? I see it as a conception of a worldview that transcends all others such that it is the one true worldview in contrast to all the other ones as false. Yeah, that's that's basically what I would say. Okay, good. And you could 
now you could there's there's like a soft postmodernism and a hard postmodernism in this sense. Yeah. Soft postmodernism would say there is one meta narrative. It does exist, but it's obvious that humans can't get at it. Oh, I like that. It it might as well be undiscoverable. Yeah. Yeah. It's undiscoverable, but like you should work toward it. You know, that's still worth doing. That's what I would lean toward. Then there would be a hard postmodernism, which would say there literally is no there is no set of true claims that obtain over all of reality. Okay, good. So the way you consider postmodernism to be responding to the data of the world correctly is that postmodernism claims that situatedness should prevent us from thinking that our worldview is the one true correct worldview. Situatedness being the temporal, geographical, and cultural factors that influence which beliefs we hold and why we hold them. In your view, human experience is so multivariate and complex that we should be more open to the validity of other worldviews. Yes. And, and maybe for a quick illustration to go back to uh, the beginning of this, this season, the second crop of episodes yeah. where I was talking about propaganda and reading the uh, Canaanite narrative through a liberation theology lens. Like I might say to him, I don't think that's the best reading of this passage, yeah. but I can't say to him, I know the true meta narrative of biblical narrative theology or something, and you're wrong because it's this. Postmodernism says to me, I have to take that perspective seriously. I have to give it a seat at the table. And by the way, just because only 15 to 20% of Americans are African American, that does not make their view only 15 to 20% likely to be correct. That's another kind of facet of this, right? Yeah, absolutely. A belief cannot be judged as true or false based on the amount of its adherence. If more people believe the Earth to be flat rather than spherical, the Earth wouldn't suddenly become flat. Right. An idea or theory can actually have very few adherents and nevertheless still be true. This was the case when heliocentrism first emerged. Right, exactly. This was the case when evolution first emerged. This was the case when general relativity first emerged and so on. Yes. You're right. We should remain open to perspectives that differ from our own. Yeah, or 1933 Germany, 99% of Germany is Christian and they still elect Hitler and let him do everything. And, you <laughs> yeah, know. yeah. So whatever. Obviously, majority doesn't make it right. Right. And the reason you're bringing up postmodernism with regard to our interview with Van Hooser is that you think it's more beneficial than he makes it out to be. Van Hooser wants a middle path between postmodernism and modernism. And you think postmodernism is actually most beneficial. Yeah. Or, or I don't know if, even if I would say benefits, I would just say it seems to me to be the responsible conclusion given the data at this point in my life. Better than his middle way? Well, he mentioned that the Reformation had a way to solve this through the solas, uh, in particular, sola scriptura. Yeah. And I just am not convinced that that works. He said... Luther was not trying to make every Christian their own pope. The priesthood of believers means that we make up a nation of believers under King Jesus, not under the pope. He, he's combining sort of the, the readability of scripture with basically church tradition and, and the tradition of how the church as a whole has and is interpreting the text. Sure, so he's, sure. he's, you know, he's buffering that tough position a little bit and that the reformers, he says, told Christians to read the Bible with the church. So we're supposed to read it knowing that there's an ancient consensus way of reading it. But so that was his point. I have problems with that. The first one that I won't spend a bunch of time on is like consensus is hard because there was a consensus about slavery and a consensus about women. And, you know, there's all these consensuses that go away. Yeah. over time. And those consensuses appear to me to have been wrong. Right. And consensus applies not only to theological views we consider to be clearly wrong, like a biblical support of slavery, but consensus applies to several different views because consensus has simply shifted. During, let's say, Luther's or Calvin's time, there was a consensus among Protestants about the divine authority of Scripture that simply no longer exists. There are whole branches of progressive Protestant Christianity that conceive of the authority of the Bible in terms totally different than those of Luther or Calvin. Consensus doesn't work because consensus shifts. Right. And then do you count them? Exactly. How do you count all these incommensurable consensuses? 
How do you do it? And one, yeah. And one way that, uh, you know, someone like Albert Moeller or, or people on the right will want to say, they'll want to say, well, these progressive Christians, because they're not submitting to the consensus of traditional interpretation, they don't count as part of the consensus. But like, if you give it a hundred years, you won't be able to say that anymore. Yeah. You don't know the future, right? Like, how do you know that the consensus won't shift? Like the consensus of missions has totally shifted away from preaching the gospel at all costs to like caring for the poor and, and letting them know that you're Christians. Like that consensus has totally shifted. And really in a true sort of macro consensus sense. Yeah. But I do want to focus a bit on Sola Scriptura. So my understanding is that scripture as a source of truth is supposed to function on its own, right? So in, in the Wesleyan quadrilateral, you know, you've got scripture, uh, tradition, reason, and experience, and scripture is supposed to be doing its own thing. Yeah. But scripture could never exist without experience, tradition, and reason. So scripture is written down in response to the experience of the early church or certain Christians within it, it is then vetted and considered for canonization by the church itself. And then when they're canonizing, they're using reason to do this. Like how close was the author to Jesus? How much do the teachings accord with other teachings from books that we're already confident about? Then only does it become scripture through experience, tradition and authority and reason. Yeah. So that's, the first hurdle. Now, someone might say, well, okay, once you have scripture, then scripture is all we need. And we don't need those other sources of knowledge or authority anymore. But that seems to me like a weird move, don't you think? Yeah. And, and there's a further problem. Why can't Christians who claim sola scriptura seem to agree on almost anything that scripture, quote, teaches? They don't agree on baptism. They don't agree on sin. They don't agree on atonement theories, the role of women in the church, yada, yada, yada. And this is bleeding over into the next argument. So we can leave that there. But like, that's an issue, right? Yeah, it seems. How would you uphold this idea, Sola Scriptura, as something that actually unifies people in a viable third path between postmodernism and modernism if it clearly does not unify them? Yeah. In point of fact, it doesn't. Yeah. In practice, it doesn't unify them. And so what I'm left with is this. I think it's kind of funny. The only stuff that Protestants all tend to actually agree on are the creeds, which are not scripture. That's very ironic. The Apostles Creed, the Nicene Creed. Like, that's the only thing that everybody agrees on. Yeah. So it's so weird. Like, why not just say sola credo? Right. Like that would be a much better approach, seems to me. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it. There's this quote I love from theologian and philosopher Keith Ward, um, and I'd like to read it. It's about a paragraph long, and then maybe we can unpack it a bit. I'm curious what you think. I love Keith Ward. Let's hear it. Quote, none of these philosophical views are clearly more rational than the others, and none of them are matters of blind faith. One thing that philosophy can teach is that reality is ambiguous and its nature is difficult to discern. Humans are just basically diverse, and the best they can do is make their beliefs as coherent and well-informed as possible. Thus, the first lesson of philosophical reflection is that absolute theoretical certainty is not achievable. That those who are wisest are those who, as Socrates said, know that they know little, and that there is no such thing as the one totally rational view that all intelligent people are bound to accept. Life is more complex than that, and in the end, we may all find ourselves having to commit to some beliefs in practice without making claims to final theoretical certainty. That is not irrational. On the contrary, it is supremely rational to see the limits of human intellect and to accept that practical commitment without theoretical certainty is a human necessity. This is especially true if such commitment involves a response to the perception of something that is both morally demanding and personally fulfilling. End quote. What's your take on that Ward nugget? He seems like the perfect proponent of your first point, which was that postmodernism really is the most responsible conclusion in the face of all the data the world produces. And that can be theologically beneficial and responsible at the same time. Yeah, well, great. So we don't, <laughs> we don't disagree. So 
So I think a more mild postmodern understanding of the plurality of views in the world is just a rational, appropriately humble response to the variety of the world. Yeah. Uh, And Van Hooser says that radical postmodernism will say that we can reduce one person's worldview to the particular situatedness of their body. Obviously, I don't agree with that. He's right that that's not true. I'm not a radical postmodernist. But neither do I think that anybody can be all that confident that they have, in fact, gone beyond their particularity, not just their gender, their time or their place. I would add things like their brain chemical makeup, their personality preferences, some of the stuff you talked about in a first episode of this season. Yeah. For instance, if the research is accurate, that people who espouse conservative political or theological beliefs are also less likely to enjoy traveling to new places or trying new foods, etc. How do I know how much to weight my own personality as I consider, for instance, how to read scripture about women in leadership? Yeah, I find the evidence derived from such studies to be completely convincing. And some of this research has shown that connections exist not just between different ideas or dispositions, such as a resistance to traveling to new places connected to conservative political views, but such connections exist at the level of mere sensory responses and brain chemistry. Right. For example, one study had participants fill out a political survey two times a couple months apart from one another. During the second time, they had the participants fill out the survey in a room filled with odorous garbage, and this odor made their political views more conservative. Apparently, the foul odor triggers a purity response, which, at the disgust level, coincides with conservative ideas at the intellectual level. Yeah. The point is, we're not in control of our beliefs nearly as much as we think we are. Dude, totally. So, I just think that if we're going to zoom out, my general view has to be something like, there is objective truth out there, there is a fact of the matter, but it's very, very hard to know that we have found it. And that's why I like the Keith Ward quote. I want to make my own views as coherent and as well-informed as I can while always knowing my limitations. That's the approach. Yes. The way I'd put it is that sense objective truth can be so difficult to discover at the intellectual level. I have actually begun to shift from seeking to produce true beliefs to seeking to increase understanding. I want to embrace a provisionality of my beliefs that confirms them as ideas of whose validity I'm currently convinced, ready to be reconsidered, should I be persuaded to reformulate or relinquish them. Yep, exactly. So what about your second point? Christian Smith and pervasive interpretive pluralism. So I could I could maybe do better justice than this, but it's something like this. Many people claim, and he said these are often not scholars, they are just lay people, but they claim that the Bible is perspicuous. Perspicuity is the quality of a text that makes it immediately understandable by any basic speaker of the language that it is written in. And so what uh, biblical inerrantists claim, uh, of a certain stripe anyway, he calls it like biblicism. It's kind of a naive biblical inerrancy, maybe to use terminology that we've used uh, season one. But basically the idea is that it's perspicuous and it does all fit together. It does present only one view. Yeah. The argument from pervasive interpretive pluralism says, look, if that were true, you would not have so many different understandings of scripture among Protestants who all agree that the Bible is the only authoritative guide for faith and all agree that it's unified. So if it's so unified, how come we are so ununified? That's basically the argument. So what Van Hooser wants to do is have an approach to reading the text that does not fall into the kind of skepticism that comes from the, the uh, pervasive interpretive pluralism argument. And he claims that even for Smith, like knowing who Christ was is just as hard of a problem as knowing how the Bible all fits together. Uh, and that seems false to me. Um, I remember you saying this during the discussion. He used pervasive interpretive pluralism against Christian Smith's Christocentrism. By saying, if you think the Bible's hard to agree on, isn't Christ hard to agree on? You have four different Gospels and everybody thinks different things about him. So how do you get one unified Christ through which to interpret scripture if you can't be unified on Christ? And you're saying that argument doesn't hold up. Biblicism can't be true about the Bible, but Christocentrism can be right about Christ. Right. Basically, what I'm saying is 
that Christocentric or cruciform approach relies on fewer points of data than the one that uh, Van Hooser uses, which is narrative theology, which I'm going to get into now. The argument here is simply it just uses fewer, fewer information points. And so there's less disagreement on those. And once you say, no, Christ was not incarnated of God, Christ was not crucified and not resurrected. Well, then you're not talking about Christianity anymore. And so within Christianity, we could pretty well use this as a lens. What do you think? How strong is this argument? It's actually not bad. It reminds me of your argument 10 or 15 minutes ago about how most of the factionalized 10,000 Protestant denominations agree more on very short creeds than on any particular idea of the Bible through Sola Scriptura. Right. One very special aspect of that is the creeds are maybe a couple hundred words each at most. There's a very small amount of claims for individuals to agree upon. And maybe that's part of what allows agreement to actually exist. Yeah, I had a really interesting conversation um, on one of my patron-only episodes with my buddy Ben Bishop, who you also know, uh, about orthodoxy and what counts as orthodoxy. And I won't rehash that whole conversation. It was over an hour long. But my view is basically Christians are people who say Christ is Lord and that full stop. And from there, they disagree on everything else. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Yeah. So obviously I like this kind of Occam's razor approach. So using pervasive uh, interpretive pluralism against Van Hooser's view of narrative theology. So Van Hooser uses narrative theology. And John, you, you mentioned the stages of this narrative, creation, fall, etc. Can, can you fill those in? I forget exactly what they are. The basic structure has three parts, creation, fall, redemption. And so Van Hooser says we should read scripture in light of this narrative. But how can we conf- be confident that that's the right model, that, that those three are the right motifs? Are we missing one? Do people disagree about the items in that narrative? Right. And then what about people who don't agree with the approach of narrative theology? I just don't know that he has a way to answer those big questions in any more of a bedrock fashion than Smith's Christocentric approach or Boyd's cruciform approach. It's interpretation all the way down. Those three are all perfectly interesting options. And there's no way to know for sure that one works better than the other. Well, yeah, the three terms seem very simple. But each term has a dozen different possible viewpoints. If you take the fall, you could believe that the fall constitutes human separation from God, needing a very particular kind of reconciliation. But many Christians don't believe that the fall and sin constitutes full separation from God. If that doesn't fit with their idea of God in the first place at all. Right. And that's significant enough a disagreement for the same narrative theology structure to work for one person and not work for another or at least to work in two different incompatible ways. Yep. So we're just back to like soft postmodernism. There's a way that Dale Martin talks about this. He says, there's no way around it. It is interpretation all the way down, but some interpretations are more plausible than others. And I think that's, that's all we've got. Yeah. We're at least constrained by the context of the literature. When, when Jesus is saying something in the Sermon on the Mount, You can debate against what its purported meaning would be, but you can't say that it means something literally opposite than the syntax that he articulated. Right. Exactly. Yes, of course, there are plausible and implausible interpretations. Yep. Okay. Third point. Van Hooser, like so many others, like Paul Copen, like a lot of guys, really downplays the disgusting stuff in the Old Testament around slavery, treatment of women, etc., And this is the kind of stuff that's really hard for me with these more conservative thinkers. And honestly, it's not fair to African-Americans, for instance, and other groups with real slavery in their past for us to take the slavery in the Old Testament and explain it away, even if we don't aren't trying to do that. But I just I just think that the data in the text is just so clear. I want to quote something from Leviticus 25, verse 44. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country. So these are people who are not ethnically Israelite. Yeah. And they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life. 
but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. Okay, so that is ethnic-based chattel slavery. You literally, you're allowed to go to other nations and buy and take people as slaves. Yeah. And no wonder people use the Bible to support slavery, you know, back when they did. It's in there. It, I don't think like people say, well, slavery wasn't what it is, what it was, you know, wasn't back, back then what it was with Africans in America. But this sure reads like it's pretty similar. Yeah. As far as I can tell, you can make that argument a lot better when it comes to the New Testament and slaves in Greek or Roman occupied territories, but not back in ancient Near East slavery. Not at all. Yes. So it is a little different in Paul's day and whatnot. I get that. But yeah. And and there's still an issue with like Paul and Peter. Oh, there's an issue. Yeah, (laughs) there's an issue. And they're referring to the the Torah and they're not saying that this is untrue. You know, so there's still issues in the New Testament. But like, let's just call it what it is. And then we skip down uh, eight verses to the year of Jubilee. So people talk about this. This is a standard uh, line from Christian apologists about Old Testament slavery. At the year of Jubilee, things go free. Here we go. Verse 54. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. The problem with the year of Jubilee, it does not apply to the non-Israelite slaves in the text. And so that is, frankly, a bullshit argument that people use. And I, I don't know if they're using it in bad faith or if they really just are textually illiterate, but it's right there. There's just no rational way to whitewash this stuff. Yes. There are some ways in the Old Testament to explain away apparent problems at the semantic level, but I don't think these passages can be included. For example, in Genesis, there's the famous line of Eve being Adam's helper. Yes, yeah. This is obviously an insulting term that makes Eve out to be a mere subordinate servant to the superior Adam. But in ancient Greek, in the Septuagint, this term is parakletos, which has a much more powerful meaning than helper. A great way to define the term would be a support without which one would perish. Right. This term is actually applied in the Old Testament to supporting armies that enter a war to save a losing side. That's what Genesis is trying to say that Eve is to Adam. It's saying that they are companions that depend on one another. The English word helper, though it sort of makes sense, is just lazy translation in my opinion. Totally. However, I don't think you can similarly explain away these passages about slavery and property. No. The Hebrew word for property, for example, achuzah, actually means that which is subsumed under one's ownership and possession. It's usually applied to land or inheritances. And in these verses, it actually means that humans become owned property. And there's no way around it. Yes. And it's funny, you mentioned the, um, it's Ezer. Ezer is the word in Hebrew, paraclete in Greek. Mm. And I have an episode on, you have permission, with Carolyn Custis James about patriarchy in the text. And and we talk about that exact verse and that word. She's done a lot of work on the Hebrew word. And she says it's more like, like almost every time that word is used in the Old Testament, it is God helping like an army. And then a couple other times, it's actual armies. Yeah. It's like, so it's, it's like, like a military war, term, basically. <laughs> yeah. And so I, it's serious I, to be clear here. I think that the, I think that the, the Lord is speaking in the old Testament text in these beautiful little diamonds, you know, amongst some of this rougher stuff. I don't, I'm not saying ignore the Bible or anything like that, but I'm saying, good, good, let's good. be honest about what's in there. There's no way to semantically get out of, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. You may buy slaves. There's no way around that. That is chattel slavery. The main reason we're bringing this up is because, as a critical remark on Van Huser's content, this sort of problem with scripture denies the validity of sola scriptura. Yes, exactly. We need some other way to think about scripture that will give us a hermeneutic to look at this. And for instance, Greg Boyd's and Christian Smith's give us that. They say this conflicts with the cross. Therefore, we should interpret this as a negative example at best.
So that's pretty much, uh, that's it for my responses to KVH. And again, I just want to say I was, I was pleasantly surprised by how much we agreed on. And, uh, really, I think he's got a lot of good stuff to say, but I enjoyed his chat and I enjoyed being able to talk about this with you. I'm excited to hear your response to uh, our conversation with him. Well, thank you very much for your remarks. I also thought a lot of what we discussed with Van Huser was very interesting, and my remarks, like yours, are largely critical. So there are two main aspects of our discussion with Van Huser that I would like to discuss. First is his reference to philosopher Richard Rorty and how this relates to epistemology, and that's the branch of philosophy concerned with knowledge. Second is Van Huser's reference to philosopher Alvin Plantinga and how this relates to psychology. Great. So first, Van Hooser brought up Richard Rorty as an example of whom not to follow when it comes to postmodernism and theology. If you remember this, Van Hooser referenced Rorty as someone who understands truth with a lowercase t instead of truth with an uppercase t. Right. So truth with an uppercase t would be, in Van Hooser's words, truth the view from nowhere, whose claims are absolute and objective for everyone everywhere at all times. But Richard Rorty thinks this is impossible, so his insistence that truth is with a lowercase t means that truth would be the view from somewhere, a view from truth that takes into account one's presuppositions and assumptions and values. The reason I'm mentioning this is that, surprisingly enough, I actually agree with Richard Rorty. I think he's an example of someone whom we should follow rather than someone we shouldn't follow. And there are... Far too many reasons I generally agree with Richard Rorty's work to list them all. So there's just one I want to talk about. And he approaches this one reason in two different ways. A lot of what I'm going to say is drawn from two of his books, if anybody's interested. One is called Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature. The other one is called Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. So Rorty doesn't believe in truth with an uppercase T, He doesn't believe we can secure too many intellectual beliefs as objectively and absolutely true because he's convinced that truth is made rather than found. Mm, Okay, what does that mean? Well, here's the first way he thinks about this, truth being made rather than found. Rorty is convinced that since truth only applies to sentences, and because sentences cannot exist independently of the human mind, then truth cannot exist independently of the human mind. Simply put, if truth only exists in language, and languages are made rather than found, then truth must be made rather than found. Interesting. And this is standard logical inference. I actually think it's easy to see in normal life that it makes sense. Give us an example. A good example is one that we actually mentioned in season one. So let's say it's true that I am married to Kristen, my wife. Yeah. The truth is not just the happenstance of our having made vows to one another in a public ceremony. That isn't something that's true or false. That's just something that occurred in reality. But when I use language to utter the sentence, quote, I am married to Kristen, end quote, then that can either be true or false. Yeah, the the actual marriage vows are an event that either happened or didn't happen. But in order to say, true or false, you have to say they happened or they didn't happen. And then that's the thing that is true or false. The the statement about the event. Yes. Now, Rorty has his argument at that basic sentential structure for why truth is made rather than found. But here's a better example that shows why he thinks it's so important. In the 1970s, when faced with the energy crisis, President Jimmy Carter declared what he called the moral equivalent of war with regard to the energy crisis. But what's strange is that this sentence of his, quote, the moral equivalent of war, and, well, the entire speech in which that sentence is contained for that matter, is what philosophers call a conceptual metaphor. A conceptual metaphor is not only capable of being true or false, they're also capable of redefining reality. And this is how. When Carter declared the moral equivalent of war, he also identified a new enemy a threat to national security. Mm. He reorganized priorities. He set new targets. He established a new chain of command. He imposed sanctions. This didn't simply transform the way Americans viewed the energy crisis. It licensed political change and economic action. 
His sentences created new opportunities for ideas to be true, without any regard to whether or not they related to reality. So, to see how this works, I know it's a lot. Consider the following question. Well, no, yeah, give me an, yeah, give me an example of of something that would be have an opportunity to be true given the new framework that Carter imposed. Yes, Carter declared the moral equivalent of war. Now, after that, say that he subsequently claimed to have won a major energy battle. Okay, yeah. Should we consider this sentence to be true or to be false? Hmm. If truth is something out there in the world, then there would have to be a real external threat, a real field of battle. There would have to be enemies and forces. All of these would have to be out there in the world for an actual battle to have been won, but none of that existed in the real world. Yeah. All we can say is, given that Carter framed this as a war, yep. it seems that he did win a battle, or it seems that he did not win a battle, right? Something like that. But only you have to give that context. Yeah, without yeah. the metaphor of being at war in the energy crisis, no energy battles could possibly have been won. But if you accept the metaphor, mm. then the claim of winning a major energy battle makes perfect sense and could certainly be true. But it would be true not because it corresponds to reality, but because it corresponds to a conceptual scheme that Carter created in language. So, truth, in Rorty's opinion, applies only to sentences. Sentences are made by human minds, and so truth is made by human minds. Truth isn't out there in the world. Yeah, interesting. I guess I... I don't really have any kind of rebuttal to that because I'm not a philosopher. Uh, It'd be interesting, you know, someone like Keith Ward, who we've been talking about earlier, is actually an idealist. And he believes that mind comes prior to physical matter. Yeah. And uh, it would be interesting to know what the what the uh, result would be of combining Rorty's claim that you are supporting with idealism as opposed to materialism or something like that. But I don't, I don't know what that would be. I just, that's just interesting. Yeah. They both at least agree on the point that the way we view reality in one way or another constitutes reality. Yeah. And that's a really, really important philosophical view. But here's the second way that Richard Rorty approaches the idea that truth is made rather than found. He thinks that the correspondence theory of truth actually doesn't work. For most of our intellectual ideas. Remind us what that basic correspondence theory is. Yeah, the correspondence theory of truth is simply that a proposition is considered true when it corresponds rightly to reality. Yeah. So if I utter the simple sentence, quote, my car is parked in the driveway and reality is such that my car is really physically located in my driveway, then we consider the sentence to be true. This example seems pretty straightforward, of course, but when we consider intellectual ideas, like those pertaining to religion or philosophy, justice, ethics, politics, Rorty thinks all this breaks down. And here is why. Rorty thinks that the correspondence theory of truth doesn't work because the world is indifferent to our descriptions of it, meaning that there's nothing in the world to which our intellectual ideas actually correspond. This is uh, partly based on the stuff you said earlier, that truth can only be, that like, it, it, this is related, right? That oh yeah, events it's the same reason were false. Events just are. Yeah, it's kind of the same. Another angle on the same point. Yeah. So Rorty says we should think about it like this: there is no way to make sense of the claim that the physical substances of which reality is comprised somehow prefer one intellectual idea over another. The world doesn't prefer deontological ethics over situational ethics. It doesn't make any sense to say that non-rational material reality thinks that Augustine's worldview is the right one while thinking that Plato's worldview is the wrong one. This makes no sense at all. The world doesn't care about our intellectual ideas and our intellectual ideas don't correspond to anything out there in the world. I understand that view. Yeah. It's a very simple argument, but it's, it's kind of genius. It's one reason I like it so much. There's just nothing out there in the world that says Plato is wrong and Augustine is right. There's nothing out there in the world that says one ethical theory is right and the other is wrong. So Rorty instead thinks that our intellectual ideas can be true, not because they correspond to reality, but because they correspond to the appropriate conceptual scheme. But conceptual schemes, like worldviews, differ from person to person, from tradition to tradition, 
from belief system to belief system. And so, not many intellectual ideas can be objectively, eternally true. There is no uppercase T truth. So my only problem with that is that if God exists and or if physicalist materialism is false, and for instance, something like idealism is true, then I don't think it would be true that there is no entity or part of the world that sort of cares or can confirm or deny the truth statements of of, uh, propositions. Right. So I think you have to assume uh, materialism and you might have to assume atheism for his argument to work. And I'm not a a true philosopher, but that's my take in the moment. Well, I definitely see what you're saying, but let me clarify. The correspondence theory of truth claims that true ideas correspond with reality, not with God. Okay. So Rorty is still correct in arguing that there's nothing in reality to which our intellectual ideas correspond. Cars and driveways are part of reality, so I can say my car is parked in the driveway, but deontological ethics is not part of reality. Yeah. Besides, my car being parked in the driveway would be true because it corresponds to parts of reality, not because it somehow corresponds to God. Right. You can say God is reality, but that's not Christianity, that's panentheism. In Christianity, God is distinct from reality because God has created reality. You could say that some of our sentences correspond to God's mind, but how do we really know God's mind? If we know God's mind through sentences, then the truth of those sentences could only have been made, not found. And so our ideas at best would be corresponding to something we've already made. Totally. Which just reinforces Rorty's point. Totally. And so maybe what I'm pushing back against is, the if, to use the language we used earlier, I'm pushing against... A moving from a soft postmodernism to a hard postmodernism where I would stay is, look, I'm, I'm kind of with him most of the way. And I still agree that I should not assume that what I think is true is the big meta narrative, the, the grand meta narrative by which all other narratives will be judged. I'm just saying, uh, you know how I said earlier, I think I would say that there is a true state of affairs. I just have a very, very hard time knowing it because of my situatedness or to use Rorty's language, because I'm engaging in all of these various schemas to use language. And those schemas are somewhat arbitrary based on where I happen to be born or whatever happens to sound reasonable to me or all that stuff. Totally agree. In fact, I've recently written an entire book expanding upon these epistemological ideas through exploring intellectual disagreement. So if any of you listening work at a publishing house or know an acquisitions editor, please contact me because I'd love to speak with someone about potentially publishing my book. But all this talk about uppercase and lowercase t truths is why Van Hooser referred to Rorty as a postmodernist. Yep. However, we must also remember that Van Hooser does agree with Rorty a great deal. Van Hooser takes situatedness very seriously, and he believes along with Rorty that cultural, temporal, and geographical factors influence what we choose to believe. Van Hooser actually has a term for this. He calls it embodiedness, yeah. and says that Christian theology generally considers it to be a good thing, a natural part of being human. But Van Hooser thinks this all goes wrong with the fall and with sin, and then he ends up disagreeing with Rorty about uppercase and lowercase t truths, not least because of his belief in the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, who dispenses uppercase t truths to believers, right. and because of his belief in sola scriptura, which also dispenses uppercase T truths to believers. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not rolling my eyes right now, but I, it's clear to me that I don't think that he, but that's one other way of saying what I said, which is, I just don't think that Van Hooser has a legitimate way out of this problem. And so I'm more inclined to agree with a Keith Ward or Dale Martin that like, no, we have to embrace this and we need to understand our Christianity in light of this fact. Yes, and talking about postmodernism and the fall when it comes to Van Hooser's conceptualization leads me to my second point. Plantinga and psychology. Exactly. So Van Hooser brought up Alvin Plantinga as an example of a Christian philosopher who has presented a viable middle way between modernity and postmodernity. And this middle way is a version of reliabilism. And reliabilism is simply, according to Plantinga, 
The argument that our brains reliably operate according to a divine design plan aimed at generating true beliefs. So, Van Huser views this as a specifically Christian approach that ensures that the deliverances of the mind are trustworthy, and he can do this while taking situatedness seriously. It's the middle way he's after. Does that make sense? Yeah, let me, let me see if I understand it. So, it's like, look, we're, we have a flawed but fairly reliable truth-getting mechanism in our reason and, and, our, and our senses. So our senses and then our brain's ability to make sense of our experiences to make sense of ideas, we can do it and it works, but it doesn't work infallibly. Is that basically right? Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it because Van Hooser doesn't want to capitulate to postmodernism's hopelessness in producing true beliefs, but he also doesn't want to latch on to modernism's overconfidence in producing true beliefs. Exactly. He's trying yeah. to keep both of those in balance. but. My concern is that I think this theory, this reliabilism from Alvin Plantinga, which Van Hooser endorses, runs into serious problems when we consider its relationship with psychology. Okay. So I'm going to run through a quick list of discoveries from modern psychology that have decidedly disproven the idea that the human mind is designed to generate true beliefs and that its deliverances are generally trustworthy. Okay. To be clear here. We, this is important. I want to just make sure we understand this before you, you get to these things. It's not simply that planning is saying, Hey, our brains work pretty well. They, they get at true beliefs pretty well. He is also saying that they were designed by God to do that. And that there is evidence of that, of that design, because like, look how good they are at getting at true beliefs. It's kind of like a watchmaker argument basically for the human mind. Yes, everyone listening should also know that there are atheistic versions of reliabilism. Right. Plantinga's is specifically theistic, specifically Christian. You're right. Okay. The, that's good the to know. mind's yeah. ability to produce true beliefs is tied to its design plan created by God. So there, there are four quick discoveries from modern psychology. First, the human brain is structured in a way such as to be naturally saturated with several reasoning errors. They're not quirks. They are the way the brain is made. Second, humans are profoundly predisposed to use their reasoning primarily to support their existing beliefs rather than to discover any idea of objective truth. Third, we give preferential bias to arguments that confirm our prior conclusions, and we unfairly scrutinize arguments that disconfirm our desired conclusions. And lastly, we employ our reasoning primarily to select what we do and do not want to believe rather than to uncover what is true and false. This leads to the obvious conclusion that whatever we can say about our brain, we cannot say that it's been designed to reliably generate true beliefs. The unanimous findings of modern psychology have shown the exact opposite to be the case. The rational aspects of our brains have evolved to persuade others and to solve situational problems, but they certainly have not evolved primarily to find the truth. Well, basically, I'm with you on on the thrust of this argument. I think that it is true that um, the the further you get from the day to day concrete realities and needs of a human life into uh, the political rights of a fetus start at conception. Yep. The further you get from these things, it's like it's not we're not working with rational arguments here. What's interesting is that Van Hooser in our interview acknowledges that our brains have natural reasoning errors. And he attributes these to the noetic effects of sin. And those are the effects of sin that corrupt our reasoning. Mm. But he doesn't think this poses a problem. He thinks psychology is descriptive rather than normative, which means it shows what brains actually do rather than what brains should do. Sure. So he's convinced that our brains are naturally reliable and they are aimed at generating true beliefs, but that it is sin that has corrupted our normal mode of operation. However, I don't think this solution works. I just don't see how it could possibly be the case. The findings of psychology have shown that the reasoning errors of our brain and the fact that our brains aren't designed to generate true beliefs is simply built into the natural structure of what our brains are, such that sin cannot have produced them. It's just how the brain has always been. So the only real way, therefore, to keep Plantinga's theory intact is to begin 
with some bizarre metaphysical assumption that the fall physically rewired the constitution of our brains to operate the way they now do. But first, Plantinga claims that the way to fix the effects of sin is spiritual regeneration. And in fact, most theology is uniform on this point. The problem, however, is that this won't magically rearrange our brain tissue into new cell structures and neural pathways that will adjust and correct our reasoning errors. In order to overcome the reasoning errors, we don't need spiritual regeneration. We would need completely new brains in our skulls. Yeah, I I guess what you're saying, if you as long as we're still talking about the primary function of the God designed brain is to get true beliefs, then, yeah, you need a new brain. The second reason I thought Van Hooser's solution didn't work was evolutionary. If we adopt this odd metaphysical assumption that non-physical sin has wrought physical effects on our brains in the way Plantinga explains, then how are we supposed to reconcile this with evolutionary history? It seems biologically insane to me to argue that our brains have suffered generative regress totally when all the data points towards how our brains have experienced dramatic progress. Yep. Our brains are more developed than our ancestors, more developed than anything else in the world. Yep. So you can't say yep. that our brain has made progress and regress at the same time in the same way. The theory can't overcome this problem. Yes, I agree. I agree. That concludes my critiques. And I just have one final remark, which is actually a positive one. Great. And it relates to something Van Hooser said way later in the interview. He highlighted the importance of rising above our fear of being wrong and rather bravely seeking after the truth. Even if, he said, even if it means admitting that you're wrong. Yes. The actual quote was, he said, quote, I hope I love the truth at the end of the day more than I love my system of theology. Yes. And I think that's a brilliant idea. Loved it. And it's ironically the reason I've shared my criticisms. I've shared them because (laughs) I'm taking Van Hooser's advice and I'm standing by my conviction of what I think is true. So whether you agree with Van Hooser or not, I hope you can see the benefit in his idea that one's allegiance to seeking the truth should be more important than one's allegiance to their current belief system. That's important. And this is, yes. And I mean, I probably could have, I should have given examples at the top of the episode, but like, that's exactly the kind of stuff that I was so impressed by. Oh yeah. And that the reason that I know that he and I could have many beers and meals and talk about this stuff charitably and enjoy each other because we do fundamentally agree on that, that posture towards the world and yeah I totally agree with that yeah with that assumption the rest is just good conversation yeah great man well that was fantastic thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed that as much as we did if you're looking for ways to help us out please go to iTunes subscribe to our podcast and leave a review it really only takes a minute and we'd very much appreciate it If you'd like to share any of your comments or questions, you can do so at our website, reconstructpodcast.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.